0: Podcast.
1: Toot, toot.
0: Mr. Possum. One thing I wish people asked me about more is writing advice. Mm-hmm. After all, you and I are both very accomplished aspiring authors, and for all anybody knows, one of us could be the next uh, Ken Follett or Leo Tolstoy. Exactly. But no, everyone's too busy going about their day doing uh, contactless deliveries or bagging up my
1: groceries to ask how I get my ideas or what I think makes for a good story. I feel the same way. You know, people have lots of questions for me, but it's usually like, what's with your face? You look like more of a crocodile than a possum, or why do you die all the time? But they don't ask me about my literature times.
0: So tonight on the show, your friends and mentors, Big Howl and Possum, are gonna talk about writing
1: Writing And we're even gonna present some of our original prose as examples And there won't be any cons, just prose, cause it's good Ha <laughs> ha, toot 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 toot, tonight you're going to hear some excerpts from our books And dear listeners, don't you dare try stealing from me and These are very protected by legal stuff So when we come back,
0: you'll hear a great bit of advice followed by a great bit of writing
1: Oh, mm-hmm. oh. Tonight, we have a real classy one for you. We're going to be giving you some advice on writing books. Big Al, what's your first little bit of advice for our listeners? The first aspect of
0: writing I want to discuss tonight is grabbing your audience. Mm. Writing should not be a limp, passionless exercise. You got to poke people right in the brain through their eyeballs using words, Mr. Possum. Mm Mm-hmm. And all great works do just that For instance, take my self-help book Get Busy Dying, 13 Rules to Help You Hit the Ground Smiling Here's an excerpt from the prologue In which I let the reader know I'm talking directly to them Prologue Hey, you Hey, you Yeah, you I see you there I see you reading this, sitting there, or standing. It's a little hard to tell from where I am, but I'm watching you. Now you're looking around all confused, wondering where I am, but you can't see me. I see you, though, and I want you to know that I wrote this book for you. Specifically for you. You there, in those blue jeans. And, let's say, a blue shirt. Again, my vantage point is not the best I can't see your shoes, but they're probably blue, too. You probably thought, heck, got my blue shirt and my blue jeans on. I'll throw on my best blue boots. And I haven't even mentioned the blue cowboy hat on your head. Well, dang, I might as well throw on my blue cowboy hat, you probably thought, as you put on all those blue clothes. You love blue. It's your thing. You're a blue cowboy. Sky the Blue Cowboy, they call you. An American legend. When you're not wrangling the fiercest herd of Longhorn across the great western horizon, you're dealing out what little justice there is to be found on the lonesome savage plains. But you've crossed the wrong man, Skye, and the clock is ticking. When you gave my dear sister Clara the impression that you were fond of her, and then told a coterie of card sharks at the Shivering Cactus Saloon that you'd have more use for a three-legged mule, you broke my beloved Clara's heart and put me in the unenviable position of needing to restore honor to my family name. Now, I know full well that the shadows on the outskirts of town will be less safe without your diligence and oversight, but we enter and leave this world with only our name, and I intend to defend mine. In short, Sky, the so-called Blue Cowboy, I intend to see you at the end of a rope by my hand. Death is coming to you, and it's coming soon. So I hope you have your affairs in order. In fact, I wrote this book for you to help with that. Follow the advice I offer in the upcoming chapters, and I guarantee you will meet the cold figure of death, again, by my own hand. So help me God, with a balanced ledger and a contented heart. Now, it occurs to me that someone besides you, Sky, may wish to read this book, and to them I say that as long as you respect the honor of the daughty name and the purity of my beloved Clara, you need not worry that death approaches you by my will and action, but death Doth Approach You, My Friend. Make no mistake about that. And this book can help you prepare for that. We haven't shot a pick for the cover yet, but I imagine it'll be me in a coffin, smiling real big with a couple of tablets under my arms. And that tells you everything you need to know. Thirteen rules for a fulfilled life. And I got them all, trust me. And these aren't amendments or additions, by the way. These are the only rules you need. And every one of them is essential. It's not like the Ten Commandments. all respect. To the good lord above but come on you exile people and send their dude up a mountain and carve some commandments into stone they better all be bangers but for all the hype on those ten commandments not one person on earth thinks wishing you could give a long wet kiss to your neighbor's hot wife is an egregious crime heck wishing that is probably the cornerstone of western civilization but i digress these are precisely the 13 rules you need to smack the ground cold with a smile on your face or speaking once again to Sky the Blue Cowboy, vigilante of the lawless plains. These are the 13 steps to dig
1: in your own shallow grave with a clear conscience. Mm-mm. My brain has been poked, Big Al. It really engaged me, and it really grabbed me by my shirt and my brain.
0: Well, that's what I was going for, Mr. Possum, so I'm glad, I'm glad I succeeded there. And you kind of got that I'm also talking to you even if
1: you're not the guy I'm talking to, right? That came across, right? Yeah, of course I got everything I was supposed to get. I'm smart. I got it all, okay? I got okay. it. Right. Okay. I got it. Right. I guess the first piece of writing advice I would give as an author is to always write stuff that's tight. Always paint a picture that's cool. hmm And if you can, write yourself into the story as someone who's very... Strong and awesome. Does that make sense? Your first bit of advice is to write something that's cool. Yeah. It's easy. Yeah. Okay. I've written a series of detective possum novels. You know, just a bit of pulp. Uh-huh. Well, you know, genre stories are a great exercise. Well, it's not an exercise. It's a finished book, big owl. Okay. Let me just read you from a chapter some of my Detective Possum stuff. This is from a chapter called The Case of the Downtown Scarecrow. Okay. This hot dog is too hot, I said to myself. I actually spoke that aloud, even though there was no one else in my office. That's just what you do when you're a private detective. It's expected, I said out loud. I removed the two hot dogs from the bun. It would never cool off so long as it was being insulated by its little warm bread jacket. I took the dog and waggled it in the air, hoping my drafty office would make it cool enough to eat. As I sat wagging that hot dog in the air like it was a judgy little finger, there was a soft knocking at my office door. Go away, I'm busy, I growled. But the door opened anyway. And who walked in but a pretty lady smoke show. She wore a floppy (laughs) hat, kind of like Carmen Sandiego. She was all legs and shapes, I tell you. She took off her floppy hat and her long golden hair tumbled down to her shoulders. I dropped my hot dog. Her golden hair gleamed like she was a scarecrow in the midday sun. "'I'm a scarecrow,' she said. "Hmm," I said. "'I was just thinking how you reminded me of a scarecrow, "'but prettier than any I'd ever seen. "'What brings y'all away from the country?' "'I returned my hot dog to its bread jacket and took a powerful bite. "'Oh, I'm not from the country,' she replied. "'I'm a downtown scarecrow.' That's why I'm dressed nice and wear a floppy hat. Have a seat, I said. Oh, I can't sit down, the downtown scarecrow said. My legs don't bend at all. Must be boring work. Guarding corn in the city, I said intelligently. I don't see many farms down here. As I told you, I'm a downtown scarecrow, she said. I guard popcorn. And someone's stealing all of it. Sounds like you're bad at your job, lady. What do you expect me to do about it? I asked. I expect you to track all the popcorn crumbs and figure out who's been stealing this corn, she said. I'm a private detective, not a common hound, I said. You want help tracking scraps? Go get yourself a hunting dog. This isn't just any popcorn detective, she said. This is white cheddar popcorn. And if you find the thief, I'll make sure you get all the white cheddar corn you could ever want for the rest of your life. The hot dog fell from my hand onto the filthy floor. A bit of drool slipped out of the corner of my mouth. And as it dripped onto the two hot dog, I heard it sizzle. Well, hot dog, I said. That's how you do it, big Al. You paint a picture that's tight.
0: Wow. That. Talk about sizzling. That is some hot, hot writing there, Mr. Possum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. You could just feel the steam
1: in the room. Really, really, really something special there, Mr. Possum. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, I like to, I like to write dialogue that tells a story, and it's interesting to see the detective character kind of surmise that she's a scarecrow and that she's... You know, what's she doing in the city? You know, that's the best part. Oh, but then the the part where the white cheddar popcorn gets involved. Ooh, that's good.
0: Now, I'm looking forward to later in the story that hot dog eventually getting eaten. You don't want to introduce a hot dog in your story that doesn't eventually get eaten. That's kind
1: of one of the rules of writing, in my opinion. I know. I know. Every hot dog that's introduced in this whole book gets eaten. Believe me, all the hot dogs get eaten, okay? They all get eaten. They okay. all get eaten. I'm not going to have a hot dog. I may not eat it. I suppose I brought
0: that up more rhetorically for our listing audience. Obviously, I have great faith in your writing ability.
1: Oh, well, sure. Yeah, I knew that. Sorry.
0: Possum, a critical element of writing that gets lost on even some successful writers nowadays is character. I get the feeling when I'm browsing the airport bestsellers that these dime a dozen schlock merchants want me to just be able to inject myself into the protagonist's lives without any friction or cognitive dissonance at all. Mm. But I like stories about people, people with their own lives, their own quirks. Part of telling a story should be getting to know someone Mm -hmm. Getting to know their friends Getting to know how they interact with the world around them So here's an example from my fantasy adventure book Harry Stonefield and the Witch of Time Harry Stonefield and his band of misfits Rode through the woods on their way to summon the Sword of Enchantment From Nildeer, the Witch of Time I sure hope Nildeer is in a positive mood today Harry Stonefield said optimistically I doubt it, responded George of Stanzer, high upon his noble steed. That would require good luck, and I am an unlucky little man, doomed to fail at all my exploits. Oh, come on, George, replied Harry. You can't always be unlucky. No, he can, interjected Helene, the wise-cracking female companion neither one was explicitly interested in. Plus, Harry... Nildear is probably still upset with how you broke it off with her. She's a witch, shouted Harry indignantly. It wasn't going to work. She hasn't been outside in the daytime in 400 years. She tried to bake me a child. Sure, it's always something, mumbled Helene. Just then, out from the dark forest, burst the mighty Kramhar. Hello, Harry, George, Helene, Kramhar exclaimed. Boy, have I got a quest for you. Oh, here we go, mumbled the band of misfits. Kramhar was always showing up unannounced and inviting everyone along on some hair-brained scheme that never turned out well. He was tall with an electric shock of dark, scraggly hair and a wildly expressive face, which contrasted Harry's smug, stoic grin quite nicely. George was, of course, bald and Helene had curly hair. They decided to check back in with Kramhar later in the day and continue their journey to summon the Sword of Enchantment from Nildir the Witch of Time. On the way, Harry and George discussed how they sleep when overnighting in a stable. "'I like to get down in the hay. Cover myself in it,' George said. "'You're a burrower,' acknowledged Harry with a knowing shrug. "'I like to lay atop the hay.' "'You're a haylayer,' shouted George. "'I knew it! He's a haylayer!' "'Both of you are crazy,' said Helene." The hay is full of ticks and mice. Me, I simply bring a blanket. Too good for the hay, said Harry. Helene, you're a stable snob. She's a stable snob, Harry, shouted George.
1: Ooh, way, big Hal, that was something. I've never seen characters like that.
0: Just some, uh, you know, purely original fantasy characters that I made up. I think having lively, expressive characters like that gives just gives a story its own spirit. It's almost like anything could happen to these to these folks. Really, they could just be lost for sort of an entire story, you know?
1: Well, all the details about, you know, what each one does when they get into the hay and how they sleep and stuff, I mean, that's the kind of thing that gets you real connected and, uh, you know, attached to your characters so that when something actually happens in the book later, which I'm sure it does, at that point, you're like, Oh, not him. I I know how he sleeps, you know. I feel like I know him.
0: Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we all know someone who is a haylayer. We all know someone who's a stable snob. Or we might be a stable snob ourselves. And so you read it, you think, uh, I mean, I kind of I kind of identify with this character here or this character there. You know, yada yada yada, that sort of thing. Uh, so Mr. Possum, I think you've got a, another little tidbit, little nugget of advice to offer the listeners and a and a uh, presumably, a fantastic excerpt from one of your from one of your many works.
1: Oh yeah! Now, my next bit of advice is to follow your passions. If you're real interested in something, write about it, and then the reader will get that and understand your passion. You know, they'll it'll come through in the writing, is what I mean to say. Now, I got real interested in outer space, Bill. Uh huh. Really fascinated with the cosmic mysteries and all them spinning blobs up there and the chaos and the rocks and the aliens and all that kind of stuff that goes on out in space. The physics of it all. How does it work? Sure. Why? Why? What's going on up there? What are all those little blinky things?
0: Well, these are some big questions. Yeah. This is going to be a real meaty piece of writing, I think.
1: Oh, yeah. So I wrote a little science fiction series, and it's, you know, called Captain Possum, and I'm going to read you a little excerpt from the Captain Possum series. Chapter 3, The Space Frog. The frog pulled a blaster from behind his back and swiftly pointed it at my head. All this time his hand was back there, I thought he was just scratching his back. It was winter after all. And who doesn't get dry skin in winter? You're pretty quick with that blaster, I said. But your little frog brain ain't that quick. Because I've been counting your ammo while we've been having a shootout. And you're fresh out of lasers. I saw a flash of panic in the frog's eyes. And then he pulled the trigger. Click. Told you, you dummy. No more lasers. Frogs are so stupid. Before I could finish berating him. I was being slapped across the face by his long, sticky tongue. It really hurt. He recalled the tongue back to his mouth, and it was so sticky that it jerked my head when it let go. Again, the tongue darted out, covering my whole face this time. And again, when he pulled the tongue back, it gave me a frightful whiplash. "'No tongues!' I shouted. "'Let's fight with swords instead!' Nope, he said, and he just kept hitting me with his old, heavy, sticky tongue. shoo we," I said. I'm the captain of this spaceship. Don't you think you should show me some respect? And the space frog stopped hitting me with his tongue, and as he was about to speak, he started hacking and gagging. His mouth was positively full of hair. "'Oh, got something in your mouth, Space Frog?' I gloated. It was so tight. I had bested this frog in battle, and in space, at that. "'Get off my ship, Space Frog!' I shouted, and he totally did. He just left. That was probably the best day of my life. I went back to my quarters and asked the robot how much longer until we landed at the next planet.' And he was like, it'll be a long while, Captain Possum. Better go ahead and get in your sleep thing. Oh, I don't want to get in my sleep thing, robot, I pouted. I have really weird dreams when I get in there. And when I wake up, my nails are all long and gross. Get in your sleep thing, Captain Possum, said the robot coldly. All right, fine, I said. But my fingers were crossed behind my back. And, buddy, I wasn't using them fingers to scratch my itchy back. I was using them to lie to this robot. Because I was not going to get in my sleep thing. No way. That's the end of that chapter. Wow. You got to write characters that are smarter than everyone else around them. Sure. Oh, Captain Possum is smarter than the frog because he counted his lasers. And he was smarter than the robot who wanted him to go to bed. No, he said. No.
0: But unfortunately, we are limited by the expanse of our own brains. So, like, for instance, you don't know what a sleep thing is called. So you just say sleep thing in, throughout your whole book, presumably, right? It's just what Captain Possum calls it. Right. Now, Possum, I have a, uh, maybe a little bit of a pedantic gripe. Mm-hmm. with one aspect of uh of that story, which is you started off by telling us that it was winter that it was in the winter time mm-hmm. that this was happened that this was taking place now, Captain Possum is out in space, yeah, and winter is sort of a function of uh being on a planet. It's a season which is dependent on being in a certain area at a certain time on a planet. There's no winter in space
1: what Oh, come on. Well, they don't got calendars up there? Of course there's winter in space. It gets cold, and then it gets a little warmer, and then it gets real hot. It doesn't because
0: you're not on the planet. You're not. You're, the weather outside is not changing due to where your planet is
1: positioned. I think that, if anything, the winters are worse in space. They have to be. Everything's uh, worse in space. Right. Plus, these are critters from planets, and they may be, even if there isn't, seasons in space— they have, like, you know, when you lose a hand or an arm, you have, like, phantom pains. I think that they're having maybe phantom season feelings. So, like,
0: you mean even even someone out alone in the vast coldness of space would have a phantom summer out there? Where they do a little boogie and holding a surfboard with wearing a Hawaiian shirt?
1: You know what? I think phantom summer sounds like a good sci-fi novel. I don't hate that at all.
0: Uh, you know what? Let's collab on it, Mister Possum. Let's uh, let's write a story about a guy trapped out in space who has himself a phantom summer, and he he does all the fun summer things. He has a beach party. He uh, falls in love with a girl from the camp across the creek
1: in his spaceship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't like this idea anymore. I'm bored. What kind of advice do you got for us next? If you've got good characters,
0: as we discussed, and your reader's attention, as we also discussed, it's time as a writer to set the scene. It's very important that a story have stakes and kinetic potential. A good yarn should be like watching a spark dance down the fuse of a bomb. But the reader has to know the fuse is headed towards a bomb and who is in danger because of that bomb. So in setting the scene, you got to be bold. You got to put a big boulder at the top of a hill. Here's an excellent example from my short story, A Single Bullet.
1: Oh, yeah. This
0: isn't very good, Nelson Van Salavander thought to himself as the servants took away his untouched serving of mincemeat pie and replaced it with a finely polished wooden box. This isn't very good at all. Maybe you should have had a bit of pie, Mrs. Salavander whispered playfully across the table at him. Nelson maintained his stoic countenance, but curled his toes fretfully inside his low-top Spanish boots. In short order, all the dessert plates on the table were replaced with identical wooden boxes as Dr. Dufont, the head of the International Order of Assassins, lit a hugely fat cigar and rested his enormous elbows on the empty place setting at the head of the table. Gentlemen and ladies, he began, you represent the best of the best of our fine international organization. You are the most talented killers in all the world. Your invitation to this feast is a great honor, but it shall prove to be a great challenge as well. You see, I, Dr. DuFont, head of the International Order of Assassins, am retiring. For the first time all evening, there was a moment of complete silence at the table. The Twelve Honored Guests knew the question of succession was not answered with favor, but with action. They would need to choose their next moves very carefully. Now, I say this sincerely. We're all friends. Let that not be in question. And some of us are closer than that. The Van Salavanders, of course. The Deadly Pitters brothers. But, as all of you knew when you took up the cape and the dagger, the assassin's life is a solitary one. And only one of you, can succeed me in my position. This is to maintain order, avoid vacuums and conflicts of power, but most importantly, to ensure we continue forward with the most apt and capable leader. Nelson Van Salavander ran his eyes across the room and took stock of the other contenders. There was the aforementioned Pitters Brothers, Luke and Duke, equally skilled at firearms and training attack animals. A masked swordsman known only as El Sabra, A war hero and war criminal, General Baxter. Femme Fatale, Stella Lajoix. The legendary Japanese killer known as Takedo Samurai. Circus strongman, the elephant. Arson specialist, Caster Blaze. And the candied yam, a portly young assassin specializing in murderous confections. And then, of course, there was Mrs. Van Salivander. Did Nelson's wife have any misgivings about participating in a deadly high stakes game against her own husband? She gave him a knowing wink that told Nelson the answer was no. If he were a betting man, he'd put his money on her. Before each of you sits a locked wooden box. At the stroke of midnight, the lock on that box will open and you will gain access to a single-shot 45 caliber handgun with one single bullet in it. This handgun also has a timed lock on its trigger. It cannot be fired until 12.10 a.m giving everyone 10 minutes to prepare, find an optimal position, pray, whatever you must do. Also at the stroke of midnight, this room will fill with a harmless fog, giving everyone equal cover as they leave. Soon after that, the room will fill with a powerful neurotoxin. So if you wish to painlessly remove yourself from the running, perhaps you should relax and order a drink. Nelson exhaled calmly and raised his hand to attract the attention of the nearest servant. Could you please bring me another serpent's tooth, he requested. The rest of the guests eyed him with uncertainty. Nelson was by far the most accomplished and most senior assassin in the organization, save for Dr. DuPont himself. But the word among them had been that he'd lost his edge. He was missing shots and second-guessing moves that would have been natural for a predator such as himself. Could Mr. Van Salivander truly choose to forfeit? I'd like a hot chocolate, said the candied yam wriggling uncomfortable in his tight sailor's costume and nervously pulling his sticky hands out of his pockets. Half a dozen wrapped candies and a wad of spent candy wrappers drizzled out onto the floor, and the collective shriek of all the cellophane-wrapped lollipops and gobstoppers in his utility belt cut through the tense air like an after-dinner belch. His impossibly tiny little feet kicked apprehensively against the legs of his chair, and his beady little eyes darted nervously to all his competition across the room. The candied yam knew full well most of these deadly assassins were too savvy to purchase one of his deadly delights on this particular evening. When all other contenders are dead, the final man or woman standing will return to the house and find me in my smoking chamber, where they will accept the position of head of the organization and carry out my retirement, which I hope you will perform quickly, though I recognize some of you may have issues with me that you may need a little time to work out. Do what you must. That will be your right. So finally, I say to you, great assassins of the world, it has truly been a pleasure. And if there is an afterlife, may it not be punitive in nature. Cheers. And that's it. That's something. You can see all the conflict unraveling. You know what every character's mysteries and strengths and weaknesses are. And they're all just, it's like a powder keg ready to blow. You know exactly the time that the neurotoxin is going to fill the room. That's, that's how you know you're reading a good story.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Mr. Possum, I'd like to hear your final excerpt and a little bit of a little tidbit of wisdom you have for our aspiring
1: writers in our audience. Well, sure. I think it's real good when you're writing stuff to involve a bit of romance, if that's what you're into. I think everyone's into romance, Mr. Possum. Romance can be invited to anything, it's always welcome. It's like bacon. You can sprinkle a little romance on anything. And I've done that in my little novella called The Thanksgiving Feast. Here it goes. Ah, well, let's settle in for Thanksgiving at the human house. It's cold and nasty outside, but inside it's warm. There's a fire on purpose inside. It's in the fireplace the burning wood makes the air smell nice, like little smokies. Mmm, mm, mm, little smokies. And all the members of this human family are gathered at the supper table. They're seated before a tasty spread of wet brown food. Mother and father are there, as are the boys. Even Uncle is here. He usually doesn't visit since he don't live here. And of course, Peepaw and Meemaw with their knobby wooden knuckles and their milky eyes. Eyes that don't work good anymore, really. What they see upon the table is a blurry, out-of-focus brown blob. And that would be Thanksgiving dinner. Uncle says, Boy, this meal sure looks nice. We got turkey. We got rolls. We got taters. Of course, we got guzzingers over-the-counter extra fancy cranberry misting spray, which feels nice on the back of my throat. But I do declare there may be something missing. They all mutter, sort of confused. This is a bit rude of Uncle to proofread the feast. Even the boys think it's rude, and they both eat boogers. Me, Meemaw and Peepaw sniff the air, taking a mental head count of the foods that are present. Uncle says, Now I don't mean to be rude, I'm just wondering if maybe you left something in the kitchen by mistake, that's all. Then mother says, Well, by golly, you're right. There is something missing. Oh dear. Where's the dressing? And here's where things get spicy. It's at this moment that the neighbor wheels in a great big cart into the dining room. On the cart is a great mound of stuffing. It's large, like the size of a cake a dancer would pop out of, sorta. Of. And guess what pops out but me, Mr. Possum? And I'm dressed like a stodgy old pilgrim feller. And I say, Did someone ask for dressing? How about undressing? And I rip off the Pilgrim outfit, and it's me, totally nude, right in the middle of this stuffin'. A gasp in the room. The boys exclaim, mother, father, there's a possum in the dressing. And father says, boys, go to the rompus room and play with your toys. This is for adults only. Man, is he right about that? The boys scurry off to their room. Mother stands up and says, Now just what in the world is the meaning of this? And she doesn't look pleased. But then I start to do this very sexy move. A dance move, sort of. But more like the way a cobra would waggle up out of a wicker basket. And Mother sits down. See, the moves I'm pulling are very erotic and interesting. And she's starting to warm up to it. I sliver up completely out of this stuffing and now I'm free from the mound. I'm in. I'm finally at Thanksgiving. I possum. Imagine that. It doesn't take long to get them good and aroused. Tongues waggling out of their heads, hands shooting for their billfolds, fumbling for dollar bills. I've got them right where I want them. And I go around eating all their food, but in an impossibly sexy fashion. I start going around to their chairs, touching their faces and doing cool stuff with my bud. Uncle reaches out to touch me, but I smack his hand. No, I say. Then I eat all the rolls on his plate. Then it's over to mother and father where I take the whole turkey off the plate, put it in my pouch, and then spank the pouch. Their desire for me is very strong. Me, people look irritated and impatient. I can tell their mouths are very dry. That's just how it is with the old. So I make sure to spend some time closer to them personally so they can smell my musk. Yes, me, ma, and desire me greatly as well. I get a handful of okra and dangle it over their mouths. They sniff the air, hungry with desire. Their mouths aren't dry anymore, I can tell you that. They're good and drooling. Peepaw tries to bite the okra, but I pull it away. Then I dangle it over Meemaw's mouth. She too bites at the okra, but I pull it away. No, I say. You can't have it. Them's my fixings now. And then I drop the food in my mouth. And they moan with old desire. It's at this point that I crawl back into my stuffing pile. I feel safe in there. My belly is full and I've just had Thanksgiving. I can die now, and I probably will. Possums don't live that long. The neighbor wheels me out, and I sit there in my little hut, feeling very thankful for the meal that I just had at my first human Thanksgiving.
0: Well, wow, that's, a uh, man, you can just smell that writing coming off the page. It's just got its own kind of, I don't know, gross sort of stink lines, that, uh, that
1: writing you've done there. Right. It's good to paint with words and with a stink. I paint with a stink brush. Boy oh boy, that's poetry itself right there.
0: The Big Howl and Possum Podcast.
1: Toot toot.